0: What's going on, guys? Kevin Estello of Fieldcraft Survival. I'm the host of this advertisement for this podcast. Guys, uh, this podcast is only possible with our sponsors, with the folks that advertise here. And I want to recognize two of them. The first sponsor is Sig Sour. Guys, Sig Sour is more than a firearms company. Sig Sour produces a lot of the accessories for those firearms that they do make, including amazing ammunition. I want to talk to you about that ammunition just for a hot second. I'm a Ballistics nerd i've attended the sig Sauer academy precision scope rifle advanced precision scope rifle reach for a thousand When I was living out in utah and we were using the kafaru property out there I mean, I was shooting out to 980 yards on a regular basis And i'll tell you some of the best ammo that I found to do that sig sour ammunition something that you should know about their ammo In ballistics and long range shooting, you gotta know what standard deviation is between the rounds. You don't want one round that's going say 2,600 feet per second and another round that's going 2,400 feet per second out of the same lot. Well, the SIG ammo has a very, very low standard deviation. That's what I found. We're talking only five feet per second, which is very negligible. So I love the stuff that SIG puts out there. They make great, great ammo, including some really good ammo for their 365. They have a special round that is designed for that pistol and other short micro compact pistols like the 365. So I'm a huge fan of Sig and I'm very thankful for them being, you know, one of the podcast sponsors. And of course, if you are going to train and you're going to carry a pistol, maybe you're going to carry their ammunition, then I would recommend that you guys train at the Sig's Hour Academy. It's up in new hampshire and they also have training around the country but that's their primary location and the sig training is awesome you can do everything from pistol to carbine to shotgun to precision scope rifle you name it you can do it there so guys please head over to sigsauer.com take a look at all the things that they have to offer now there's another company that i want to recommend and it's what i currently have in my tumblr right here and that is hoist hoist hydration Uh, There is a 10% off discount if you use the code fieldcraft10. That is F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T 1-0. Guys, go to the website www.drinkhoist.com. Hoist hydration is pretty awesome because it has very little sugar. If you spend a lot of time working out, you need to replace your electrolytes. Hoist is a great drink to do that. In addition Hoist has no artificial colors. So, you know, you go to the store and like you want to get an energy drink and a lot of people, mainly kids, get attracted by like the bright colors that they see in the refrigerator. Well, you're not going to find that with Hoist, but you are going to find a drink that is going to help you rehydrate and it's used by a lot of elite athletes. Our instructors here at the company love Hoist. When I was out in Utah, we'd get cases of hoist and every once in a while, I'd be able to steal one or two away from our marketing director who has a whole refrigerator of it. Guys, hoist hydration is awesome stuff. I found it nationally, right? You can probably find it in your grocery store or like I said, you can go to www.drinkhoist.com and you can use that coupon code fieldcraft10 and get yourself a discount off of hoist. So I'm gonna tell you, it's good stuff. You know, people say you need to hydrate, I agree. Most people are walking around dehydrated. Well, you might want to do something about that. You might want to drink hoist. All right, guys, here we go. Let's get to this podcast. Um, so this these episodes, we talk about
1: resilience through your story. Um, we talk about, um, it's called Mission Resilience. I've mm-hmm. interviewed Kevin Owen, Sean Kirkwood, Jericho Denman, a former Ranger with Black Rifle Coffee, uh, Chad Robichaud. And you have a profound story, but also... You know, you've gone through a lot in your combat experience. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to let's just focus on combat. We haven't really done this because this is only an hour show. I want to I want to get the distilled combat story. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about you're a Green Beret. You were a Green Beret, and you were in Third Special Forces Group. Sure. Um, when what was your first trip to combat like?
2: So the first trip, um, it was the two thousand nine two thousand ten timeframe, and it was on Camp Moorhead, which is a, a base right outside of Kabul where you got the sixth commando Kandak there. At that time, uh, my ODA was tasked to stand up the first ANASF, Afghan National Army Special Forces units. So we traveled around all over the country, went to the different Kandaks and handpicked guys. It was like three days of biometrics. It was get <laughs> it them was all in bi- processed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a big pain in the butt. But um, so we developed the first four ODAs in 2010 timeframe, and uh, took them out on their first missions. I think at that time there was a couple of Navy guys that got rolled up um, going to Jerusalem Honor and Camp Julian, and um, that was the first ever Afghan National Sport uh, Afghan National Army Special Forces mission was to find those guys, and um, it was a pretty interesting event because I think it was I call it green on blue, but not. Green as in a unit identifier and blue as a unit identifier fratricide event was going on. Oh, wow. Um, so we were listening to it on the radio at the time and uh, we're like, okay, these are two U.S. tier one units that are going at it right now. They don't know it. So um, we ended up figuring it out and uh, relaying to both units like, hey, you guys are shooting at each other. Your endage are killing each other. And so that was, that was pretty hectic. Really? That was going down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So that's chaotic. It's pretty chaotic. Yep. This is 09, yep. 10 um Afghanistan. Yep. Afghanistan at that time period was like, it was like a turning point in war. Um, and I, I did a rotation there in 10 after a rotation there in five. And it was insane. Yep. Well, yeah, that, we was, that
2: was the, the transition into the village stability operations strategy. That's right. VSO. Um, yep. yep.
1: And then I think... Uh, tell tell people about VSO for people. Yeah. So know.
2: VSO was originally uh, theorized and put into strategy by a man named uh, James Gant, Major Gant. He was a third yeah. group. Uh, Jim major Gant. at the time, Jim yeah. Gant, it was a big mentor of mine. Good for Robin Sage. Um, yeah, Zero, so that was his, something. I think it was three, three, one, six. I think it was. And they had the, the Spartan shield patch and all that. Mm. And, um, he wrote a, a, a manual a field manual, I guess you can call it called one tribe at a time. And one tribe at a time, I still got an original copy of it was the Ooh. strategy of getting back to the SF roots and actually embedding into these villages and doing the real unconventional warfare mission, which hadn't really been done. We kind of veered in the direct action thing, which is great and fun, but it's not the traditional mission that is going to achieve this strategy for special forces, right? Now, his concept was like two year long deployments and like really getting in there. Because one of the biggest factors in, in why VSO wasn't as effective as it could have been was we're turning over all the time. So you spend, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten months building rapport with these guys, fighting alongside of them, guys dying and bleeding, and it's like peace. Here comes the next group, and it's like will. Yeah, exactly. Starting so over. Yeah. the 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 local militias that were building and the guerrilla forces, um, they didn't have the vested interest. You know, they uh, they didn't have the buy-in because they knew a new group was going to come in. You know, so yeah, two year long deployments would not be, uh, (laughs) not be very popular. He did
1: that too, right? He actually did a long, So he got,
2: uh, after Robin Sage where I met him, um, which is an absolutely hilarious story. Maybe for a future date, we got the quarantine swine flu. Chinooks came down. We were in our field problem at Robin Sage. We got quarantined. Like for real? Yeah, for real. Like bubble seats and and everything. And, um, but anyways, that's, we might get there later. Um, but, um. Yeah, so that was the concept of a VSO, and it probably could have worked. He ended up getting um, an extra team, like a hand-picked team, and that was his last deployment. I'm sure people want to look it up. There were some issues with him in Petraeus, and, um, yeah, we kind of all know where that
1: went after that. Because he wrote a book, um, what was it called, Spartan? Mm. Um, so
2: I, I don't remember his book, but his girlfriend at the time was a journalist. And she wrote a book, I think it was a Lawrence of of Afghanistan, Um, and then Spartan, something as well, that kind of documented him and uh, his mentor, Sitting Bull, which is a warlord up in the Northeast, um, a regional command east.
1: American Spartan.
2: American Spartan, that's it, exactly.
1: And Scott Tyson, about major...
2: Yeah, really sad story um, about what happened to him. But yeah, so he he was kind of the first guy to really mentor me, where I was like, man, this is this is like the guy. What was know? his
1: role? in I mean, in in mentoring you, what, I mean, what was his position? So he was actually on my field team
2: uh, for Robin Sage. Oh, so wow. he was a major at Sage, running a field team. What? Yeah. Yeah. So they allowed him to do that. Yep. I don't even think that's a thing, yep, right? Absolutely. So, wow. um, which was awesome. I mean, he went full into it. When we got rolled up by the cops out in Pine Land, yeah. he would get tased and everything. And <laughs> he was awesome. But, um, yeah, he really just kind of showed me um, what it took and we had a lot of personal conversation. We were isolated for two weeks. Yeah. Or was however big the, the Sage team was 10 or 12 guys. So all of us, the instructors, we all slept together. We were in one
1: place for two weeks together. Yeah. So such an awesome experience. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah. So uh, the first deployment that transition into in visibility operations was big, but I got assigned to three five, um, three 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 five, three, 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 three four. A well, matter of fact, it was three through three six um, at the time because when you have, especially at Morehead, you've obviously got the the national mission with six can deck, but then you've got the ANASF mission and then a bunch of other uh, contingent units doing some stuff. So uh, a lot of ODAs back then, you do have like ten guys. Yeah. You know? So it's not a full ODA. Um, so you'd grab guys from other ODAs as a plussed up. Yeah. Um, so I went and did my first combat operations with them in 2010. Were you a combo guy? Yep. Yeah. 18 yep. Echo. yeah Um, which is why I got put 18 Echoes and Deltas. Need um, combo guys, you need yep. medics. Yep. Um so my first ever combat mission um was to uh, Logman Province and a couple ODAs had gotten uh, pretty roughed up the previous couple days. And uh super nervous, you know, flying through. I'm on the back and I'm plugged into to the aircraft comms and I'm I'm listening to everything. And as soon as we're coming in on final, I'm looking out the little bubble glass in the Chinook and I'm seeing like flashes out where we're supposed to be going. We're, we're moving around to the left and I can see these flashes and I hear them come up. They're like cherry ice. all this stuff, I'm like, holy crap, the HLZ has got bad guys on it. Right. And so I'm shitting my pants and and uh, getting super stoked. And then as soon as we land, I'm thinking we're going to run off and start shooting and all that. Couldn't be further from the truth. We ended up landing and, you know, commandos, we probably fit 45 to 50 of these dudes in the Chinook. And it's like herding cats, man. We were just walking off, everyone just kind of going off in those groups. And I was like, okay, what are we doing, you know? And right then and there, I realized like, hey, tactical pause, stay calm, let's just kind of go with the flow. I mean, these guys have been doing these things for years. Yeah, were know? they complacent? Because they were just comfortable? Maybe a little bit of that, yeah, for sure. Um But uh, they kind of looked out for me. Some of the commandos at that time knew that I was a newer guy. Um, And so uh, I got sent off with 13 Afghans by myself to clear 25 to 30 structures um, on the west side of the valley, which was just super cool. Um, Except uh, one of the funniest stories, I guess it's pretty embarrassing, but it's uh, pretty humorous for some of the other SF guys and combat vets my first 15 feet into leading my uh, Afghan you know, army team, I ended up eating, I fall off of a roof because uh, I didn't have death perception <laughs> on my nods. So I ended up falling like 10, 12 feet down and my nods flew off and everything. I thought I was being cool, like, "Hey, come on, guys, follow me!" And just totally ate it. <laughs> and um, I had a They're bunch all of my buddies like, on radio oh, that yeah. saw me, They're like, you ah, 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 know, <laughs> welcome and, to combat. Uh, yeah, for sure. So yeah, that was my first combat experience. We ended up uh, losing three commandos that day. We uh, two or both of our AWT teams went Winchester. Um, so this is your first combat. This op- is my very first combat op ever. ever. So Spectre gunship was the one taking out uh the targets on the hlz that we're supposed to land on we ended up having to go to a uh, an alternate hlz at the time so that's why we kept spinning around i was like we should not be loitering around this objective um so that's what actually happened and we ended up doing bda um of the primary hlz and there was just body parts everywhere so it was it was great super effective specter gunship did his job um, we had awt on station for most of the day um and uh, we had a sniper hidden in a cave and uh we hit him with all the hellfires everything we had and he kept shooting so we had to send um a couple of my buddies um three five and then another guy that was attached there to throw a thermobaric grenade inside Mm -hmm. um, to get those guys and that was before the thermobaric grenades got blacklisted but yeah um yeah super awesome trip basically our whole task was to develop an asf train them and then send them out to their odas Mm -hmm. so um i'd get them all on a on a bird, send them out to their ODAs, introduce them to them, take them out on their first operations, go back and start the next Q course. So, What, what did
1: you, after, like you had an assumption or a presumption, and then you go and do your combat rotation, was it everything you thought it would be and more, or what was your what was your mindset coming out of it? Um, it
2: I wish we would have had, like my team would have had the command of mission, but we went on almost every operation anyways, so it wasn't you know, that detrimental. I mean, being a part of something so historical um, as standing up, you know, their tier one uh, unit was really cool. And I appreciate that in the long run because I didn't know how many more deployments we were going to get. So the first one, I was like, man, we got stuck with this. Um, We had just a stellar team leader, a stellar team sergeant at the time. Chuck was the, Chuck Ritter was the senior Bravo transitioning to 18 Fox on on my team at that time.
1: Nice. So if you guys um, have seen... The Black Rebel Coffee's video. That video, we did a documentary on Chuck Ritter being shot mm. multiple times in combat, but like he was the 18 time. Bravo. Yeah, yeah, every time. Who yep. the Who was the Who was the, um, who was the team sergeant?
2: Um, it was uh, Mike Ray. Yeah, Mike Ray, he was on 391. Remember like Roughneck 91? Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, so he was on that. I know minute. Ray, yeah. yes, I know Ray. <laughs> yep, um, so yeah, it was just overall a really awesome trip. Um, we got experience with you know, uh, every aspect of developing a, a unit and then going out there and combat advising them for real. Um, I think uh, General Miller, I think he was a one star at the time, um, came out and really uh, uh, helped us out. Um, with all the stuff that we needed to to make the program effective.
1: Wow. Yeah, Scott Miller, who now runs Prairie Fire here in Texas near Austin, uh, is the CEO um, and also former unit commander, former troop commander in Black Hawk Down in Mm -hmm. Mogadishu, Somalia. Awesome guy. So so you get back from that rotation, and then what does the lull time between combat rotation one and two look like?
2: Uh, almost nothing. So I think it was probably six months, seven months. Wow. Um, at that, that much time. Yeah. Yeah. So you got your, your two weeks of leave after you get back, go to schools, come back, you got your green cycle or whatever it is, red cycle. Um, and then you're right back at it. So you go and leave again and then the 2011 trip was was the heavy one, the big one. So at that time, when you're, when you're identifying where you're going to insert um, village stability platforms, a village stability platform is a, a base, I guess you could say, or a camp that occupies a kalat. a kalat is a mud structure that the Afghans live in. Um, and so what I think (laughs) they were doing is on the software, you can see where each significant activity is or a tick troops in combat. So you can do a heat map. You can see all the different combat and then you'll have these areas that there's like nothing. They're like, oh, well, let's send an ODA in right there. Right. Well, you know, you don't shit where you sleep. So that's typically where all the fighters were living. And so it took us, Interesting. Every bit of the entire deployment to get maybe one kilometer of white space.
1: So you, so that's interesting. So, um, you know, for people who don't know what we're talking about, like the data analysis mm-hmm. and pre-deployment includes, um, getting snapshots of data, uh, operational preparation of the environment, getting an understanding of what's taking place. And they put you in the void mm-hmm. where there was no significant activities. Cause they're like, you need to get there, yeah. which happened to be where the bad guys are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and a matter of fact, so this was only a couple K away from Tangi Valley. And so what we, what we ended up finding out is the valley that kind of forked off, there's five fingers that went off. It's called the Ankai Valley. This is in Syatabad, um, Wardak province. Um, So right across highway one from Logar, um, where it is pretty hot. And most of the fighting cells that were going into Tangi Valley to disrupt um, coalition force operations were living in our valley. And um, these were guys that were highly trained. Um, they knew they would close with, they'd maneuver on you. Um, they were extremely effective. Tons of foreign fighters, um, IMU specifically, which is the um, Islamic militia of Uzbekistan. I think um, we're running around. So we'd have chatter in Arabic and and Indian and all kinds of stuff. And we're like, man, we're in we're in a spot where there's a yeah. lot of foreign fighters.
1: And it's different, foreign fighters. The feeling. Like, I've been in gunfights with Libyans and gunfights with Chechens, gunfights with Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They all have a very different feel because of the, ca- the level of capability, oh, yeah. right?
2: Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're communicating. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was really hot. We did probably 188 um, con ops on that. How many
1: months was those
2: deployments? It was, I think it was eight months yeah. on that one. So yeah. a little bit, a little bit more. The original one was 10. And then I think just a uh, detriment to the force, it started decreasing the, the deployment lengths. But that was enough. Um, so we were plus up. We had Navy EOD with us. Um, on that deployment, I was actually recovering from a uh, jaw fracture. So I had to do what's called AST for the first couple months, which is your administrative support team at the SODIF uh, Special Operations Task Force East. I'd be in command of uh, scrubbing all the CONOPS before they go up to the battalion. Um, and then doing uh, com stuff. So um, we did that for the first couple months. How'd you break your jaw? Um, it was a sucker punch at a, at a fight, a uh, little party that we were at. So, yeah, this guy. From an American? Yes. yes. Green any, any 80 second. No, an 80 second guy. I just showed up, dude. I didn't even talk to the On guy. On this rotation? No, no, this was back in the stateside.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, stateside. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: I was hoping I was going to get to go on the deployment because they're like, you're not going to be able to deploy, man. You still got wired jaw. I was like, I'm deploying. (laughs) Wow. I'm going. So they finally let me, but they're like, hey, you're going to have to do AST for a couple months and just make sure that you're all healed up. Anyways. um, So on that, um, when I was AST, I was running a Battle NCOIC. So doing all the comms for all the the troops and contact calls for SODIF. And my ODA at the time, the most upsetting thing about the whole first part is listening to your team oh. getting gunfights all the time. You're the one they're talking to. No, yeah, and it's like, oh my god, it was so frustrating. And they call me after these big gunfights, be like, "Hey, I bet you wish you were out here doing that." It's like, you assholes. Oh man. Um, but uh, yeah, on May 29th. 2011, um, my ODA was out on a, a movement to contact. Yeah, and we started getting signal intelligence that a Afghan national police officer had been kidnapped um, about two kilometers away from the team at the time, and we had a grid on them. Um, so we ended up pushing. It was going to be a hostage rescue um, for a local national police officer, and uh, we could see we had imagery overhead. We could see a big, you know, conglomeration of people. We're like, that's where it is. I was telling them on a route, like, hey, you need to take a left right here. And then all of a sudden- You're committing,
1: to, you're, com- you're, co- you're talking to your Afghan partners? No, I'm
2: talking to my team sergeant and team leader got on, it. on SATCOM.
1: Oh, got it, got it. Got yeah, it. so, I mean, this was like
2: a FRAGO. Because you're battle, battle tracking it? Yep, yeah, okay, so we're battle tracking. And then we said, hey, FRAGO, you guys are going to stop this mission. You're going to go try and rescue this Afghan National Police Officer, or at least get surveillance on it or something. Um, get some eyes on it, and uh, on the way, I hear uh, my team sergeant Chris Cahall, which is a, just an amazing individual, um, come across the radio with catastrophic kill, catastrophic kill, um, IED, and
1: uh, so he said that on the radio.
2: Yep, yeah, that was his first troops in contact, and you can just hear everything going haywire. And he said, truck one's been hit with an IED. It's a close ambush, and just all all hell broke loose at that point. And um, obviously everyone shuts up in the Sodif, and, and everyone starts spinning up. And at that time, um, we didn't have many assets that could come QRF. I think it was like Dusty or, or something like that. So flying in um, wasn't a priority at that time. So then we heard, um, what is it? Dust one or Angel? Off. No, no, no. So we lost a guy. Yeah, so I forget the the call sign when you actually lose someone, like someone got captured on the objective. Yeah, um, I forget I forget what it's called, but anyways, they call up that which is our our senior is it Bravo. down eagle or yeah, I, I forget what it was, but oh, yeah. um, so we hear that and now we're like, holy crap! So truck one, which is our our minigun truck with our team leader, our senior Bravo uh, Marty upon our our dog handler Aaron Blago and his dog Hunter. Um, my junior at the time, Gene Braxton, who's who's still in doing good stuff, and then uh, my team leader Joseph Schultz had hit the ID. They think it was a, a T seventy whatever Italian anti tank mine on top of some HME, and just flipped this gun truck. You know, a couple times in the air, everybody died um, except for uh, my junior, Gene at the time. So and four so, guys died. Uh, yeah, and then our interpreter. So it was Zaki, the interpreter, Aaron. The dog hunter and Joe. Jeez, man. Yeah. So uh, on one hit and then we're getting the calls like, hey, we can't find Marty. And we're like, what do you mean? We're like, what are you talking about? You can't find him. So, and then you're just waiting on a satcom the whole time. Like, hey, what's going on? So we were spinning up six. Uh, I think it was three, 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 four on this trip um, was at Moorhead. And they're getting ready to send some birds over. And at the time there was a Pathfinder company at uh, uh, in Logar. I think it was fop shank is what it's called so we opted there they quicker they're going to get there about um, like 25 minutes earlier so we had the pathfinder team come in and to help find him and they, they found him he actually was trapped in the vehicle um, but it was completely engulfed in flames so they didn't they couldn't go in to see if he was in there um so yeah that was uh super traumatic i believe after that no one was allowed to use gun trucks um, which is up armored humvees because the flat bottom and yep. the
1: explosion. Yep, absolutely. Because this is the transition of using V-shaped whole vehicles. Yeah,
2: because there was there was some RG33s, which is your big up armors, and then the matte V's as well. Um, they weren't liked. Um, the field yeah. of
1: view was bad. You couldn't really go off road. Seventh group wrote, rolled in the ditch. Remember hearing about that? So that was drowned. one of
2: my that was one of my Q course instructors wow. uh, Simmons. I think yeah. it was. Um, yeah. So I was, I would think I was in one of the last phases of the Q course. when I Joe Cerna
1: was one of the only guys that survived that. Mm-hmm. And his junior gave him yep. that air breathing hole. Yeah. He said he'll go find another one. And he never did. Terrible.
2: Absolutely terrible. Um, so yeah, um, that happened. Obviously they were talking about disbanding the team. Um, we, why, why, why is that? Just loss of force, you know, that we didn't have many people that we could pull to backfill it. Because at this time we're doing split team ops, right? So you got to have at least six, Six you know, um, to go out there. So um, we begged and begged and we said, hey, don't do this. Like we can find guys to backfill. We'll take some 19th group soccer medics and, you know, all this other stuff. Um, They said, yeah, you guys can go ahead and stay out there. We said, we need two weeks to make this right. They said, you got two weeks to make this right. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun for the rest of the trip. So it was pretty much gloves off. Um, at that time we got all the assets we needed. We did full, um, multi-can pushes through the Valley. I mean, we made them, we made them pay. The, w- what date was that? Uh, May 29th,
1: 2011. Um, 23 April, 2011, my buddy Ben Bittner was killed. Mm-hmm. Do you, were you there when yep. that happened? Yep. Were you in the talk when that happened?
2: Um, most likely. So he was yep. the
1: one. Um, so my son's name after Ben Bittner, but me and Ben were in Charlie Company 366 together. Mm-hmm. And um, Ben was a team sergeant. And I I was told that the son of commander saw dudes digging in. Mm-hmm. And when they were digging in an IED, he had the authorization to kill him, but he didn't. Yep. And then he told Ben's team to go and they went there and Ben, being a team sergeant and being a good leader, led his men into the area and then he slept on a pressure plate and yep. then it, it it he got blown through the air. They got him on a helicopter. He was still alive and then he died on the helicopter on the way back. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that whole deployment and then really almost everyone after that as far as... The ground force commander doesn't have drop authority, right? It's soda level, and I think even then it was above soda oh, because really? I think that bus got hit. Civilian, yeah, there was yeah. something they were super reluctant to um, drop anything, and uh, I think that the soda commander at the time was Bob Wilson, um, and he ended up letting us go as kinetic as we wanted to within reason, obviously. Um, but yeah, as far as dropping bombs, there wasn't much going on then,
1: which is just terrible. We lost a lot of guys though. I imagine third group did as a whole that trip.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we get rolled up. They're like, Hey, you're done doing ASD. You're going out to the operational. I'm like, finally. And this whole two weeks of, you know, morning period where you go back to Bagram and do the memorial ceremony and all that. We're just setting up target packages the whole time. Staying up you know, through the night, just scouring through everything that we had to line up con because it's like, hey, as soon as there we get the go, the green light, like we're gonna hit target after target after target.
1: Was the team sergeant
2: killed in that? Uh no. No, he was in rear truck at the time. Who was so. his team sergeant? Uh Chris Kahall was our team sergeant.
1: Okay. And yep. then you guys so you guys get um you get kind of reestablished, get a foothold. Mm-hmm. And then um well, the
2: first the first mission afterwards, we were going deep into their area. We're going to show them like, hey, you don't control this valley, we do. So we had a, some really good intel. We had developed some pretty good sources uh, in our valley at the time that were giving us some good information, and we knew like, hey, there's an ID right here. So we had an infantry uplift unit um, at the time. I think it was 10th Mountain, 4th Battalion that had the goldies and mine detectors there uh, ahead of me. And I was a lead truck, obviously an RG33. And we're going up over this little hill and we're like, hey, the IED is supposed to be right here. We're going to hold off. You guys just hit it with the, the sweepers. And they're like, good to go. Come on in. Boom. So within an hour of my first mission, I get blown up. So right? you're,
1: so they bypassed that IED?
2: So I, we don't know what happened. Either It was a they command wire it. pressure plate or yeah. it was a pressure plate, sorry, initiated. Um, but they must have missed it. With the Goldies, the sweepers or something. So your
1: RG33 V-hole this time
2: hit it. So luckily it was a partial low order. Not everything went off, um, but it took off the entire front end of the RG33. Took us for a good ride at the time. We had um, an agency human terrain technician with us um, to figure out the human landscape of the valley. And then um, a Navy 35 series Intel guy and a few other guys that were in the back of my truck. And uh, were you right were you your TC? I it? was driving. Oh, yeah. So the the team leader was in there. I was like, "Hey, sir, why don't you get out and walk around this way and make sure these guys are, are doing everything right?" And he was outside the vehicle when it happened. Everybody was. Um, so but right after you, yeah, they're guiding us up the road. And none of those guys got injured. Uh, just some overpressure blasts yeah. and all that. Um, but initially, we're thinking near ambush. Right. So IED initiated ambush. Um, and two weeks earlier, we just lost all these guys. So now everybody that's up in our Razors, plars, Razors, my ODA was one of the first teams to start running the, the Razors over there. So they're up on high ground. And they just, they told me like, we just felt dread. You know, it's like the next mission, we hit another one. And maybe we lost a whole bunch of people in this RG33. Like, what are we going to do? Do you remember the blast? Oh, yeah. I got knocked out for probably 16, 17 seconds or so. Oh. But I remember seeing the front end come up, right? And then, like, all the dust, everything on the steering wheel, all my wrappers and spit bottles were, like, up in my face. And then when we came down, there was no front end. So it was a further drop. And then I hit my head on the uh, steering wheel, and it knocked me unconscious for a little bit. And um, Did you have your helmet on? Yep, helmet on and everything. I mean, dude, I was, I, I was going rattle. over potential IED, so I was like, let me cinch up here. So I was super tight. Um, everybody was buckled up. And um, yeah, but we lost power and then we couldn't get out of the door. We had to run outside to use the locks, the, uh, the red locks. Scary. And we're like, now we're going to get PKM'd on us. So it's like, who's going out there to open the doors, you know? Um, but yeah, so that was the first mission after that. And then it was just absolutely, you know, everything you would expect. When you think of like a really heavy combat deployment, like that's what it was. I mean, our Navy EOD guys um, got shot in the, in the head and the helmets. Um, I think we were getting, and then, well, out of 188 con ops, um, I believe it's probably like 80 or 90 gunfights out of it. So, How many bad guys did you guys kill? Um, we think probably like 80 to 90, um, but it
1: could have been way more than that. Of course. Um, yeah. Can't do BDA on a lot of stuff.
2: Yeah. I think the last numbers that we did was typically a for rotation. Um, I don't, the data is from third group, but other ODAs are, are just as kinetic, um, in some forms and fashions. But it's about 1,250 enemy kia per SF deployment, um, which is pretty good. It's a pretty yeah, good number. Good odds. Yeah.
1: Good stats. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, what's going on, guys? Ketone IQ. Yeah, this is a mid-roll break. We're talking about Ketone IQ, a product I've been using for years now. It's made by HVMN. And it's a product that I've been using because I do have traumatic brain injury. I also have a little bit of fogginess but it could benefit everybody because it gives you the same clarity you would get when you're in ketosis. That ketone ester puts you in that ketosis state of mental clarity. And it's like caffeine without the jitters. I love it. So if you're interested in ketone IQ, um, go ahead and go to HVMN that's hotel, Victor mn.com That's hotel, Victor, Mike, November HVMN.com and use Fieldcraft, one word to save fifteen percent. Again, go to hvmn.com dot com and save fifteen percent off with the code Fieldcraft. Now back to the podcast. So, walk me through like you you as a at this time combat veteran. You you lose all those guys, four guys, and then you go back out in the op. Did you feel like you said you have you were scared shitless on your first? operation first combat trip the year Mm. prior did you still feel that fear no so
2: i don't i guess scared shitless wouldn't be a a good description but you know how it is where it's like you're really nervous like you're amped you're like hey i don't know what's going to happen it was more of that feeling yeah um on these operations it would mean every time we left the wire was a gunfight so it was like you know it's going to happen so you're kind of past that part and then you're just in flow state right so after a while it's like hey you know what to do um, once you're operating with the same group of guys and, and getting in similar um, contacts, like you don't even need to use the radio sometimes. Like you kind of know what everyone's doing. So um, you'd be a little bit nervous. There was one mission in particular, but I can't, where I actually felt dread, you know? And yeah. it, was, it was a few months later, one of our RG33s was down. We had to go out and get the, the split team back. So we're like, hey, we're going to get in the gun trucks again. Right? And I was like, No. So we're like, that's all we got. And I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna get back with the minigun. And um, I felt dread, you know, where it's like, this is it. Yep. You know, you knew. But you know, it's But like, was that
1: accepting where you're like, okay, well, yeah. I shit.
2: mean, it's not like I'm gonna not go. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you just kind of suck it up. But there was nothing, I can't think of there was nothing that was like made me feel that dread all of a sudden. It was like uh, I'm not exactly sure why I felt it. But a then feeling? after Yeah, it was just a feeling like, hey, this is the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously a couple gunfights and everything was just fine, but yeah, so the deployment keeps going. Um, I think a few months later, I don't remember what happened first, either extortion, uh, 17 or our VBID attack inside Syatabad. um, either way. So the night of extortion, so we're doing split team ops and, um, we're coming back. I think it's probably like one or two at night. And then we get a call on our Roshan phone. Um, which is super odd. Um, And it's a full motion video analyst at the time. They're like, hey, you guys are about to get a call. Just monitor Iridium, get back there. And we're like, okay. So we run over into our talk and they're like, a MH just went down in Tangy Valley. We're like, what unit? You know, like who was it? Task force, whatever. And we didn't find out who it was. And we're like, oh, fuck. So we ended up getting a call um, from our SOTA of like, hey, can you guys get over there, QRF? And we're like, dude, there's six of us. Like, we just got back from a week-long <laughs> operation. Like, unfortunately, we haven't even cleaned our guns or refit at all. So, um, I think uh, whoever the QRF was, what ended up happening, they picked all, um, all up the, the KIA, the American KIA, and put them in the vehicles and drove them to our cop inside a badge so they can get picked up by the Chinooks. Because we're the closest American base to, to where that happened. And, um, when the trucks started rolling up with all the bodies, man, it was like truck after truck after truck. And I was like, Oh, who, no. wait,
1: who picked up those bodies? I so it was
2: a regular army contingent. So all the regular army guys, cause we had like two companies worth of regular army that were just sitting around. They weren't really doing much. Um, so they ended up winning after the objective was secure and, uh, getting all of the bodies out and, and all that. So we had Chinooks coming in left and right. And, um. Yeah, I was really unfortunate to to see their guns and and all that, but I carried probably 10 to 12 of them um, from the vehicles in the Chinook. And that was just one of the heaviest feelings. Because you know, it's like, hey, this was the biggest mass casualty event, period.
1: In that unit's history. And
2: its history. And it's like, man, I do not want to be here doing this. You know, but you can feel like just the the magnitude of it. And it's like at this time, I was like, these are America's best, you know, some of the best. And um, it's just super unfortunate, super sad, very somber. Um, obviously, we couldn't talk about it or anything until all the families were notified. Um, but then, right after that, we started doing target packages over in Tangi and, and trying to get back at them. But um, yeah, so that night was absolutely horrendous and terrible. Um, yeah, God bless their families and all them. Um, and then I think it was like two weeks later or something, if my memory serves me, we got hit with a VBIED that ended up turning to be the second largest mass gasoline event in all of Afghanistan. So it was probably in your base? at our base. Yeah. So it was a big old jingle truck, just full. The crater was 16 to 17 feet wide by 10 feet deep. Oh my God. Um, so the sea land containers that were next to the wall that got blown out, looked like cylinders. The wow. overpressure had blown the sea land containers into tubes. Wow. Um, so we're probably 300 yards up the hill. And when it went off, We thought it was like a 107 just snuck in and like hit right outside our compound or right inside our compound. So TVs came off the walls and all that. We're like, oh, shit, man. We go outside and we just see a 500-foot plume and we're like, oh, shit, right? So immediately we grabbed the guns. We're like, hey, they're going to try and breach the wire. Like now they had breached right in a regular Army support um, area. So we knew there was no infantrymen over there at all. So we go beat feet down there. And um, luckily, it was just just that guy. But it was seventy-something American wounded in action. The base only had a couple hundred so people
1: there. Most of the, I mean, it was half of the yeah. people that were on the base.
2: Yeah. So I mean, I think it was like it was, it was like three or four Chinooks full of wounded in action. I mean, people in their PTs and and all
1: kinds of stuff. Wow. Anybody killed? Nobody killed? No.
2: Nobody. Well, there was um, there was a local national. Uh, at the gate, a couple of no, local nationals at the gate um, that were killed, and I think a kid was riding his bike um, next to her, so he was killed as well. But um, yeah, that happened, and then Soda was like, "Okay, well, this whole combat outpost is probably going to go bye-bye now." So then we had to go back and beg again. And we're like, "Hey, let's get some infantry uplift in here. Like, we still got a mission." And at this point, it was it was very revenge focused, I guess you could say. Obviously, there was you know strategy there that was for the overall strategy. But um once you lose a bunch of guys and once you know how dedicated they are to get you out of this specific area like it was very motivating to to keep going out. There. So this
1: is the same trip that you lo- you lose the guys. Yep. Extortion 17. Yep. Mascow VBID. Yep. And this is like an 8 month or 6 month. Uh, yep. yep, absolutely. And you get back I mean, do you have like a hurt locker moment? Or do you get back and you're just like, oh my, like vibrating on um, how was it when you came back? It, 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 it was felt different. Good. I imagine it was different.
2: Yeah. I mean, we weren't the only ones, you know. So, like, we might have got a little bit harder um, than everybody else. And as far as like historical events, but everybody was getting it. I mean, as far as like casualties, though, my ODA, you know, took the, the largest green break casualties as far as events go. Um, but that valley in particular, you know that's known for team leader and team sergeant deaths. So in the 2009 trip, my very first time, my first time leaving the wire was a uh, JP Thompson, um, the team leader for three four, got killed by his interpreter, and uh, I think their psyops kid, do green on blue. Um, and so that was the the first time it was inside a bad. The cop that I went to on the next. Uh,
1: with the psyops trip. kid, got killed. Yeah, by the uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I and have, I
2: think the team warrant ended up smoking him with the pistol. Team warrant's a buddy of mine. Oh really? Yeah. He yeah.
1: was in B two three with me. I mean, mm-hmm. he was in the SIF. Yep. His Brian. Yep. He was in the, um, what's Brian's last name? It was um, like an L or something like yeah, that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, big, um, big, bigger dude. Oh, God, what is Brian's last name? Anyways, uh, uh, he was in B-2-3 with us as an uh, ass- assaulter and sniper, yep. and then became a warrant officer, and, and he was there. He got hit in the hip.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it was JP on my first deployment, my team leader on my second deployment, and then 3-4 lost um, their team sergeant, uh, Banner. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a free fall instructor um, yeah. for a long time on the next deployment. And then I think another group lost a team leader, um, just a couple K up. Yeah. It. So it was like the spot where just bad luck um, yeah. to be an alpha. Brian so. Satterley is okay. his name. Satterley,
1: yep. Chief Satterley. Yep. Um, Man, so you get home. What's home life like when you return after this trip? Because I've had some bad trips where, I mean, they're good trips, but they're bad, mm-hmm. but you get home and you're like, holy crap, man! And then you're back into it.
2: Yeah. Um, a- after that trip, um, the drinking, you know, kicks in, um, all that, and uh, that was probably right when my my first marriage was probably, you know, going downhill from there. But um, did you
1: see that frequency of marriages and relationships and and kind of like things falling apart for team guys after trips like that?
2: Um. Yeah. Common you know, um, really common. And what it comes down to is I did a a podcast with the special forces foundation, um, executive director a while ago. And what it is, is you don't want to turn off, you know what I mean? Especially when your op tempo or your, um, dwell time is so minuscule, like you don't want to come back home and decompress. Like you need to stay on because you're going to go right back over there. Yeah. You know, so it was, You're not getting those adrenaline rushes, you know, like you were over in deployment because it's huge periods of just lull, right? And boredom. Um, And then, you know, uh, periods of super hyper arousal um, and all that. So getting back home and not experiencing that, a lot of guys end up doing what they can to feel that again. And a lot of guys in my company at the time were doing that, but it was all about the next trip. That was it. Yeah, That was the main focus because we were going back into their six, seven
1: months. The playbook, getting yep. into the playbook. Yeah,
2: getting into all the schools, especially kinetic related schools because we had the the intelligence side stuff already plussed up in a lot of the ODAs. As far as sniper school, Sephardic, Cephalic, APM. JTAC. JTAC specifically, um, all that was a huge emphasis for us. So everybody was gone for like the entire well-time at schools. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, yeah, my third deployment um, matter of fact, I ended up getting a DUI mm-hmm. after my second deployment. Got put up at HSC, mm-hmm. and so I did my third deployment with uh, sodaf again, um, running all the fleet tac operations. Mm-hmm. Fleet TAC is let's see if I can get it right. The forward logistical element, tactical assault convoy. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but anyway. Yeah. So what happens is we had sixteen to twenty ODAs dispersed across the country. At SODA, we're in charge of resupplying all of them. Hmm. So it was, you know, huge convoys, upper armor convoys, just bringing software updates, ammunition, food, all that stuff, driving down Indigenous Americans doing the, yeah. Yeah,
1: all kinds of stuff. Big risk to those forces
2: too. Yep, absolutely. Um, and on that trip in particular, 2013 trip, man, we lost, we lost a lot of guys there too. Timothy McGill, which was a 19th group guy, um, just a, a bunch of guys um, went on that trip. And then the my fourth deployment, which was um, 2014 timeframe, that's when Chuck. <laughs> meanwhile, all of these deployments, uh, Chuck got <laughs> got injured in. Um, but the fourth one was was another big one. Um, at that time, VSO was kind of going away, and um,
1: it's 2014.
2: Yeah, 2014 going in into 15. Um, Kunduz um, was basically overran at this point. I think. Uh, the unit was done with operations at this time. So we ended up taking their camp that was based out of uh, Shankersville Camp Dalkey. Mm-hmm. And so we took that whole camp over and they just handed us all their target packages. And we're like, here you go. Good luck. And at the time, uh, my company sergeant major, um, Dan Jenkins, had just come over mm-hmm. from the unit.
1: and mm-hmm. uh, I did the first trip in that camp. Oh, yeah. I set it, I helped set it, set yeah, it up. I hope up Yeah, the
2: team rooms were great. Yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah! Really cool stuff. So, and I think they had a little movie theater with like stadiums, even couches. Yeah, so, no, it was really cool. Um, on that trip, it was just super kinetic. All raids, halves, mainly halves. We did a few gaffes.
1: Maza Sharif over the. Uh, hillside Kunduz.
2: yeah well i mean so we were still hitting wardak logar Mm. um, all the way in the east but in particular a a unit an a &A unit had gotten rolled up and it was like a huge convoy i think it was like 1550 caliber machine guns all their trucks all their ammo was missing you know and then so Kunduz was basically being overrun so they moved everybody i mean so eighth candax Sixth candax seventh from all over RC East and South, went up to Kunduz for this operation. And we were running out of uh, a little airfield somewhere. It was just all mud huts. And um, that's the time period on those operations where Chuck got shot in the hand coming off the uh, MI-17. And um, yeah, on that trip, we ended up hitting a village called Golbach Village. And the intel guys came in and Dan Jenkins had said, hey, you know, the unit has hit this specific village multiple times in the the last few years. So you guys really need to watch out. And um, at this time, we had a few new new guys on the team. And um, I could tell that they didn't really understand the gravity of the situation. And um, so I was just trying to get them mentally right for this. Um, There shouldn't be any civilians in there. The place had been overrun a few times by the Taliban. So we knew we were going to go into something really hot. And, uh, we go in, I forget uh, what time it was, but nightfall, obviously. And as soon as we get off the helicopter, um, our, uh, PJ at the time ran up to the left and he starts engaging immediately. And we're like, what are you shooting at, dude? What are you shooting at? And he's like, I see a guy squirting over there with a gun. I look over and I'm looking at the walls and I see night vision, goggle reflections looking back at us. And I'm like, oh, shit, they got night vision. And I call it up on the radio. I was like, I see night vision. I see night vision. And then everything starts to open up. Helicopters take off. And until you're really getting shot at, you don't understand how you do not want to have double stack magazines on your chest.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
2: You need to get low, right? Yeah. So you're digging under your chest, just trying to get lower. And then finally a lull happened and then you just beat feet to the nearest cover. Right. Yeah. And so on that operation, we we're trying to pick up a, a specific JPL, and, um, we had good signal intelligence on them. Um, everything was, everything was right. And so we knew certain target houses at the time. So it was a, three different HLZs with Chinooks and, you know, a few different assault elements and support by fire and all that. The problem was the, The imagery that we had at the time didn't show improvements to the, I don't even call it a road system. What do you call it? The winding, you know, uh, roads with all the walls on it. So it was a maze. Yeah. Um, So as soon as all that fire happens, we get up to our first structure and we finally get oriented, look at the the ground reference guide, the grid reference guide, and we're like, okay, I'm at building, whatever. Um, At that time, as we're making our way through the village, we hear American down, American down, Charlie one is hit. So that was uh, Michael Cathcart. And um, he ended up going straight into um, target building one, which was the most likely position of the signal intelligence. And um, ended up getting one shot in the armpit, um, obviously. What was his position? Uh, or, or senior Charlie. Senior engineer. Tr- yeah. Yep. Um, and so he ends up getting shot. And at this time, we're like, hey, what building are you in? So I'm looking at my you know, my little map with all the buildings on there, like, hey, how can we get here? And I just see winding roads and I'm the closest, you know, element to get over there. So I had an army EOD guy with me and I was like, listen, I want you to pack and build like four spider charges, like wall charges. I'll carry some, you carry some. And so we had a spider charge. We're like, hey, we're just going to blow through these walls to like get all the way through. Um, But we ended up, I made the determination like, hey, let's not give away our position right now. Anyways, we get over there, and uh, unfortunately, um, Mike was – we didn't know he was EKA until, unfortunately, um, when we got back. But um, at that time – so we're trying to find our way to Mike. We end up getting to him. And so now we're like, hey, we got to get to an HLZ to get him out of here. We ended up needing to use um, AWT, whoever on station, to sparkle our route all the way through. So on some of these aircraft, they've got an IR illuminator on the bottom that can – point out targets on the ground. So we use that to guide us through the, the little roads to get out. And, was um, a
1: fixed wing aircraft? No, I think, it,
2: I think it was Rotary. rotary yeah. um, it might have been fixed wing, but like it Apache? seemed a little too. Yeah, it was really bright. So yeah. it's sometimes when you're up at high altitude, you can kind of see it. This one was like a laser beam. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure it was um,
1: Apaches or something. What was the status of Mike as you recovered him? Was he still alive? So I didn't even
2: inquire about that until after. Apparently the PJ got to him. We had one of our medics get to him and there was no pulse the whole time. Okay. So um, he was out, but we didn't know. It? Yeah, they yeah. didn't announce it. Um and then um yeah, so it was me, two ANASF guys and some Afghans trying to clear a route back to the village. Um initially with Mike in tow. Yeah, with Mike in tow, but way back. So he was with the big old group. We we're supposed to maintain a, a corridor in order to get him out. Yeah. Um before that happened, actually, um, before Mike went down, um, as soon as I saw the nods and went up to the wall. The first wall that I go up to, I can hear like some chatter, like behind the wall. I'm like, oh my God, these guys are like right here. So I, I don't know for the people that are watching. So I have my scar heavy on me, but I had it in like a retained position under my armpit. And I'm kind of peeking over the wall, but my barrel is stuck into the wall. So as soon as I see these guys, I see two fighters in full camis, AK-47s, everything. And they're probably nine feet down. So it's like tiered. I can look down in the mirror. And I see them, they look up and see me and start booking it. Well, I try and pull my gun up and I hit the wall Mm -hmm. and I'm like, fuck. And I finally get up and I just dust these guys. What was interesting about it is every single person that we had, um, a POC to a person under control, not a single one of them had SIM cards. There was like 50 or 60 guys, all their phones, no SIM cards, except for those two dudes in the very beginning. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know what, what type of information they got of him. So that was interesting. But um, as the mission kept proceeding, um, we ended up getting him um, ex um, and all that. And then, um, yeah, we ended up getting out of there and uh, lost another teammate. So, what,
1: after that loss, what's the status of the team? Like, do they keep the team together? Do you continue to operate and finish yeah, the Yeah, so
2: unfortunately, my junior that was with Mike at the time – um blamed himself a little bit i think for mike's death um it was we didn't really inquire about it um deeply about what really happened um with him in particular and he um, was with him yeah he was with him and unfortunately he at the time for whatever reason couldn't get mike out of the courtyard um that he was shot in um so they,
1: do they wind up killing the guys that were inside the building that killed unfortunately, him? unfortunately
2: no well so we're not sure
1: so you pulled that because you had a yeah the
2: ANASF team um, ended up spraying it in there with some saw and chucking some hand grenades in there but unfortunately um, we didn't go in there and really confirm that um, at that time things were so hectic and um, yeah I wish we would we would have kept pushing through and um, finished that one off but it just didn't happen that way so that was a really that was a real hard one for me to chew on because I ended up finding out that. Me, the PJ and me were the only ones that got anyone on the target. And so when I saw the group of guys we had detained in order to take off objective originally, I mean, these dudes are in like boots laced up, camouflage. You can tell these are fighters. Like, you know they are. And I was like, why are these guys, why are they still here? You know what I mean? And um, I was just super frustrated with everything. And um, and yeah, so all the following missions we made sure to to make up for that and to not leave an objective uh wishing we'd have done more
1: well there's a perpetual cycle of and i've we've experienced i experienced this in b23 and bravo company where we lose some guys i mean i think every trip i deploy with b23 we lost a guy in our company and justin Monsky, tongue to win like oh, just it was like perpetual and then it was this cycle of lose a guy kill them all vengeance like it was just this, this meanest of time cycle. Yeah. Um, how does that affect you when you come back and the show is over?
2: Um, that's a tough one for me. I think by the fourth deployment and um, obviously the, the stuff that happened after with my medical retirement, I was kind of done. If, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I had gotten everything that I'd ever wanted And especially at this time on my, after uh, my third deployment, I'd switched teams. So initially I was in Charlie Company, ODA 3333. And then after the 2013 trip, I went over to Alpha Company 3314, one of the free fall teams. And so the dynamic was different. I know a lot of guys say, nothing's like your first team. For me, it was kind of like that. I mean, obviously the guys on on 14, I love them to this day. Um, They're awesome. But everything that I wanted out of the military and and special operations in particular, I felt like I had gotten it and I had achieved it. And especially at that time, the ROEs were getting so strict. It was now in Resolute Support Mission, I think, or whatever, Freedom Sentinel, whatever they wanted to call it. And I knew that the game was kind of over. And so we had heard that Africa was coming up. And so I kind of mentally checked out as far as, uh, not mentally checked out, but I wasn't as like on it as usual. And so I kind of veered off into an instructor role and mentoring role for a lot of these newer guys coming in. And uh, right after that trip, I got the Sephardic slot, went through Sephardic and then um, had the, the injury at Womack Army Medical Center that medically retired me. And at that point, I knew like, hey, I, you got to reinvent yourself. You know because all these guys, I I'd had a lot of buddies that committed suicide. Unfortunately, third group um, guys. Oh yeah, yeah. How many
1: third group guys do you have that you lost? Uh, I, I lost can, a whole. Bunch.
2: I can think probably right. like four or five. Same. W- one of the big Same. ones for me was Timmy Hankins. Um, mm-hmm. Tim Hankins was just a one of the most awesome guys ever. You never would have expected that he had, you know, some real depression because he was the life of the party. Super funny. Um, and that ended up happening and a few stuff. But then when you go back to the team rooms, like, you don't recognize anybody. You know what I mean? They're, they're bringing in a whole bunch of new guys constantly. All the older guys that were my mentors that were 8, 9, 10 deployments. They were leaving or going up to get their uh, E-8, Sergeant Major, E-9 stuff, sorry. And um, the, the whole atmosphere of 3rd Battalion in particular was just way different. Than uh, when I started, and I just kind of realized that, and I was like, "Let me try and uh, transition out of this and figure out what I want to do after the military." And that was um, that was a big part, and I'm kind of still figuring it out.
1: So, when you left the military, you know, we're skipping over some stuff. Mm-hmm. What did you think you were going to do post military experience? Like, what what was in your head? Like, you're starting over a new life. Yeah.
2: So my whole career was the typical thing you do after I'm going to go contract. Right. So I was yeah. like, Hey, that's just the natural progression. Mm-hmm. Um, I dedicated my life to, you know, the warrior game. And I was like, that that's what's going to happen. But unfortunately after the uh, medical malpractice that injured me, I was like, well, that's out now. No, I can't go be mm-hmm. operational with missing a bicep. Um, and all that. So then I was like, Oh crap. You know, like, what do I do? I was like 18 echo. You know, I was, uh, it, it was a drone, a kamikaze drone called switchblade. Um, so I ended up getting certified to fly that thought it was awesome. Um, used my GI bill and did my undergrad and I majored in like everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Um, and then finally figured out what it, what it was, a geographic information science, um, focusing on like remote sensing LIDAR and all that. And I was like 18 echo, it's still cool. I get to go outside and do stuff like maybe that'll work. Um, had some great ideas. Um, but to be honest, what a lot of people don't realize is people don't really give a crap if you were an 18 Echo special forces guy with a topic. Like they don't really care. And so I was sending out resumes, wasn't getting, you know, much feedback, and I was like, I still got some GI Bill. When I get a degree that's a little bit more, you know, wide that can be applicable to more industries. And um, after I, I did my undergrad at University of North Texas, I entered the University of Southern California. Uh, it's like an MBA for veterans. It's called MBV. Um, it's a full blown uh, MBA program that's accelerated. Um, that's where I got my business degree. Um, but the whole time, and this was years of just trying to figure out what I was gonna what I was gonna do. Luckily, um, my wife is absolutely amazing um, and made enough money for me to figure it out and. Uh, so we just went to school full-time and uh, chewed on a bunch of different industries. And this current one really just fell into my lap. It was it was
1: awesome. So what do you do now for people who... All right. So um,
2: I work for Gritter Sports, which is a DBA under Webby Corp. So we're an omni-channel retailer focusing on e-commerce. So we represent a thousand different brands online. And um, I manage the all-range operations. So anything that has to do with the actual discharging of firearms, um, events, um, business development, all that.
1: Yeah. He managed the relationship between Philcraft and Gritter as well mm-hmm. for all the things that we're doing. Um, if you don't know in Dallas, Texas, Gritter sports is where we're at North Richland Hills. Mm-hmm. Is it Richmond or Richland? Richland, Richland Hills. Mm-hmm. And, um, we had options kind of coming into this area to be able to do different things. But the cool thing about Gritter Sports is we have the ability to have an indoor range access. We just did 120 people here in the um, little auditorium area. Mm -hmm. Um, What is Gritter Sports for somebody who's listening to this?
2: So Gritter Sports, we like to say is it differentiates itself from other retail spaces because our warehouse operation, our logistic operation for our e-commerce company is co-located with our brick and mortar. So, There's a few companies in Europe that are trying this out where if you want to buy something online, sure you can, but you can also come into the store and get those products in hand that you're looking at online as well. Um, So for example, if we have um, an overstock um, or a lot of products that we want to move, we can just take them from a warehouse and put them right out here in our retail um, space and, and move those products easier. But Gritter focuses on, obviously, your outdoor and sports. Um, We're trying to, I wouldn't say move away from, but diversify ourselves a little bit more outside of the the firearm industry. So Mm -hmm. we're big into hunting. Um, We help out lots of organizations when it comes down to the hunting and outdoor sports um, things. But Gritter itself, what sets it apart in, in my eyes is its management structure and its business model. So the, the owners themselves of, of our parent company and, um, and our GM, they really are super responsible with their money. Um, and a lot of companies aren't like that. So we pay cash. Um, we paid down our PPE loan. We paid that back. You know, so many companies did not do that. Yeah. But we they felt, took the money. Yeah. yeah we, we, we took the money um, cause we needed to, but then I think within a year and a half, we paid every single cent back wow. and it's not a small, Amount of money when you look at how many employees that yeah. we have. So how many employees do you guys have? Um, so here about seventy, and then at other locations I'd say another hundred. Wow. So um, yeah, um, it just goes to to show the management and the ownership really care about um, being responsible, um, and and that's reflected in in all of our different DBAs and businesses that we operate.
1: Yeah, and you're part of that team now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask. I want to ask you three questions just to close out. Um, one, do you have any regrets from your military experience?
2: Um, yeah, I do. Um, a a few actually, um, there was a couple, you know, situations where, um, I wish I would have, um, maybe evaluated the situation a little bit better and, uh, maybe not have been so hands-on if that makes sense with some people. Um, and then my other regret is a complete contradiction of that, where I wish I would have been a little bit more violent. Um, I'd say the thing that differentiate me and, and a lot of other guys is whenever we have regrets or are feeling guilt or, or anything like that after, it's not necessarily from things that we've done. It's because we weren't allowed to do what we needed to do. Absolutely, And that's like, we had handcuffs on. It's like, listen, if we would have been able to have ground force commander drop authority, if we would have had the permission to do this stuff, we wouldn't have, have been told to stand down. Um, we could have really gotten a lot more done. And I think that, um, and who knows, maybe we, we could have done that. And then we would have done something that we could have regretted, but I don't know. And I wish I, I could know, you know, and uh, um, I wish I was able to do more. Um, I also wish I would have taken more photos and pictures Mm. and journaled. Um, That's a big one. I think Jack Carr even brought that up. I mean, I think he was big in journaling um, while he was in, but I look back at it now and my wife is like, I'll have a drink and I'll tell her stories. And she's like, you need to write this stuff down. I was like, I know, or I'll go back through my pictures and I don't, I don't have the stuff that's going to remind me of these times. And so I severely regret that. Um, You're not not cool Um, If you're taking pictures and journaling and all that, even though you might catch some, some shit from some guys who are doing it in the long run, it'll be worth it.
1: Yeah. It's uh, definitely part of my career. I'm glad that I was introspect realizing I'll never have these memories again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Third group team in Niger right now contacted me and I sent them hats and shirts and they sent, they posted, I posted some of their stuff covering their faces. And um, I told him, he said, Hey, the guys are real happy. Thank you so much. I said, let me just give you advice. Remember these moments. Capture those moments because you'll never get those moments back again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important. Um, question number two: Do you feel like you have post-traumatic stress? Do you feel that? And if so, what's the what's the shape of what that is? Because it's different for each person's experience. But there's definitely a difference between, I would say, a special operator is experience and what they associate with PTSD and what. Actual PTSD yeah. clinically.
2: Uh, the short answer is no. I, I don't feel like I have any um, disorder. You know, um, obviously you're you can be uh, hyper aware. Um, you can have a little bit of anxiety um, and all that, but I never had anything that was debilitating um, at all. Um, obviously, maybe some some nightmares here and there, but it's like that's normal and it's and it's completely natural. You know, I think what a lot of people. Um, view PTSD as is an unnatural response to abnormality. Stuff, right? Yeah, but I don't even like the word PTSD. Yeah. Um, PTS some guys call it. But my my thing, it's a combat related stressor and anxiety is what it ended up getting labeled as. Um, and uh, but it was never debilitating or anything of that sort. And I know there there are some guys that absolutely um, just cannot function. But I would say it's pretty f- um, not usual. Yeah. especially in this community. Very rare. Um, very rare. Maybe like one or two guys that I've known that just could not function anymore. Um, and that could be other issues that they're experiencing as well. Um, but as far as like PTSD goes, um, no, I wouldn't say so. I was I was fine, you know, besides the, the uh, normal stuff that you would experience. Um, and it just took me, it took me a little bit to, to realize that. But when you're in a community of guys that are like-minded and watch out for each other and you talk, The biggest thing is to talk about it you know um you need to desensitize yourself to what is is giving you these thoughts so for example the only thing that ever kept me up at night if i think about it still to this day is um the time that i accidentally blew myself up and it'll be a story for another time um but i did not expect it at all like i was not thinking that anything bad was going to happen blew myself up. And then I'm still like to this day, if I think about it at night, and it's because I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't, uh, I didn't desensitize myself to that. If you keep doing things, they're not going to be as traumatic for you. So the guy with one deployment, the guy with two deployments that experienced combat, they are the ones that typically have these post-traumatic stress disorder type, you know, things because they didn't keep doing it. Right. If you keep doing it, then that stressor, you know, you're desensitized so to normal, it. Yeah. you know,
1: um, new baseline.
2: Yeah. And so my, my suggestion to other guys like infantry kids that I talked to, they're saying, Hey, you know, hey, sorry, I, I've got some problems. And I was like, you need to go back. I need to do it again. I need to do it again. You need First to do it shot. again, man. Yeah. Like that's that was what, you know, that's what helped me at least because, you know, getting shot at after a while is just not that big of a deal, you know? It's like it's just business.
1: You don't take it personal anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, part it's part of like, the gig.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, let's talk about uh the last question about resilience. If you had to make a recommendation for people who are listening, or give advice on how to build resilience in their life based on your experiences, which are profound, um, what would that advice be? So as uncomfortable as it may
2: be for most people, it goes right back into the, this, the last question that we just answered. You have to introduce these stressors into your life, even though it's a big pain in the butt, because um, that's the only way that you're going to build that resilience. I mean, if you don't... Uh, introduce um, trial and tribulation and problems into your your daily scope, then eventually you're going to get complacent um, and you'll kind of roll over. But if you keep adding stressors, if you keep adding things that you know you're uncomfortable with, get outside of your comfort zone um, and then fail. You know what I mean? That's, that's the biggest thing. You need to fail to become resilient. You're not just you don't win everything and then say, I'm resilient. Resilient itself means you're, you're experiencing, you know, um, something bad or a failure and you still make something of it. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't quit. Um, so go out there and do something that you think you might fail at and then do it again and do it again until you get it. And then that resilience is going to be there.
1: Awesome. All right, man, that was a good one. Eric Neal, um, closing thoughts.
2: Um, just appreciate uh, Fieldcraft Survival. And um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Obviously, visit the site to sign up for all the courses that are going to be happening here in Texas. We're really excited and we're going to bring some really awesome training and uh, knowledge transfers to the, uh, the customers.
1: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. All the notes are down below, guys. Uh, you can follow all the links down below in the show notes. And um, you can listen to this if you're listening to this. Uh, it's on the Fieldcraft Survival podcast. Um, It's available on YouTube as well. Subscribe, hit the notification tab, and I appreciate you. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.